podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. Today is Thursday, the 2nd of September. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. That's a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change your location, access anything you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe from miscreants and ne'er-do-wells. Check out LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops. You can find them by searching them on Google or by downloading the Etsy app on your phone and searching EPL Index or Anfield Index for all the merch you might want. Right, folks, I'm in a slightly better mood today. However, I found myself agreeing with Mark Goldbridge this morning, which isn't good. Makes me question things. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Th- today is Thursday. It's questions day. Not messing around with anything else today. Just going to do some questions. We've got some that have come in via text. We've got some from the Anfield Index Discord. This will be Liverpool heavy, I'd imagine. So apologies to any non-Liverpool fans listening. You just have to eat it today, I'm afraid. Radio, let's get started. The first question I have is from a man called AT7. I've been thinking about the Edwards departure story. That's Michael Edwards. And wonder if there's a disconnect now with Klopp. Ultimately, Thiago, Taki, Costas and Naby have been start- signed in the last few years and none is in the starting 11. Milner and Harvey Elliott have often been preferred to Thiago and Henderson as well. It'll be interesting to see if Kanati becomes Klopp's choice ahead of Nat. I wouldn't be surprised if he's not. Must be frustrating for Edwards anyway. So my question for future podcasts, is there a disconnect between Edwards and the recruitment team and Jurgen Klopp? And I think the answer is yes, there is. So I will say I think Thiago was Klopp's choice. I don't think the recruitment team would have signed a 29-year-old with his injury track record based on how they've done things before. I don't think they would have been against the signing, but I do believe if they were making the final decision, they might have looked in a different direction. I think that might be one that Jürgen was fascinated by and he went and kind of insisted on. I do think we'll see Thiago once he's up to full speed. I think he will be an automatic starter in the team. But Taki Minamino, I think he was definitely one that popped analytically and there was the the cheap buyout clause on him, 7.25 million. So I think that's where that one came from. The issue for Minamino is that he doesn't really fit in a 4-3-3. 
when Liverpool played Salzburg, they were playing a box midfield and Taki was playing as one of the advanced midfielders, like one of the two number 10s. That position doesn't exist in the Liverpool team. The other thing is as well, when you look at what the makeup of that team was, they had Erling Haaland up front and then Huang Hee Chan, who's gone to Wolves, playing off and round him. So you had lots of movement, but two up front. And then you had Taki and Dominic Sosbalai. And Dominic playing more of a central role, drifting to the left. And then Taki just sort of buzzing around. So this the system was slightly different. The shape was very different. I think that's why he's really struggled. I, I don't think he fits in 4-3-3. I know people like to say, oh, but, you know, he can be the Bobby replacement. Not really. Bobby's excellent with his back to goal. Tacky isn't. Tacky struggles for the, with the physicality of the Premier League. He's not particularly good in the air because he's quite small, whereas Bobby is good in the air. So I do think there's mitigating circumstances for that one. I, I think he was always, we'll buy him. If he does well, great. If not, we'll make a profit on him. Costa uh, Simicus. I think if Virgil hadn't gotten injured last year, Costas would have played a lot more. But I think with all the injuries at centre-back, Klopp's approach to it was, I'm making sure I have at least two of my regular defence in there. So Trent is going to have to play and Robbo's going to have to play and I can't afford to change them. That's my view on it. I could be wrong, but I think that's what it comes down to. Naby Keita is the one I agree with. You know, we know he's had injury problems, but he wasn't injured through the second half of last season. And yet Klopp ignored him for months on end. And now we're supposed to believe that, you know, he's one of the great midfield options that Klopp has. And he's a tremendous player. There's no doubt he's got an immense level of talent. But it's been three years now and he hasn't been able to stay fit enough or trusted enough to show what he can do. And the, th- the trust thing is where we get to Klopp. He doesn't trust a lot of players. You look at the Liverpool team, last season you would have said he trusts the first 11 before the injuries, Alisson, Trent, Matip, Virgil, Robbo, Henderson, Fabinho, Ginny Wijnaldum, Salah, Firmino and Mane. They're trusted implicitly. As bizarrely as James Milner, despite not having had a good performance in about four years, uh, Joe Gomez is trusted. You would imagine he would have trusted Thiago, having brought him into the club at his insistence. I would say that's probably it. Entering last season. Now, Jota very quickly earned his trust. There's no doubt about that. But that's still a very small amount of players. Over the course of the year, did anyone else earn his, earn his trust? I don't think they did. And from that, Ginny is gone. So you're back to 14 when you include Jota. You look at Nabi. I don't think he trusts him. Don't think he trusts Ox. Doesn't trust Divock, definitely. Sent Minamino on loan claiming he wasn't tall enough, which is a nonsense. Uh, doesn't trust him. I think he might now be developing trust for Costas because of how hard he worked last season. Re- didn't speak out, didn't come out and say, you know, I want to leave, I'm not playing here. So I think he might be in the group. So there's 15. Hopefully Kanate works his way in. That could be 16. And then 
Harvey Elliott could be 70. Now, Curtis Jones, some people will say as well, but Curtis disappeared from the team last year for months. He wasn't injured. He was a regular starter, and then he was just gone. So I'm not sure he fully trusts him yet. But And I think that'll be the same for Harvey. I think we'll see Harvey for a period of this season. I think then he'll disappear for a while. Now, whether that's to protect them in terms of minutes, exposure, etc., etc., that could well be the case. But it means he's not going to trust him to play every game. Curtis Jones didn't make Liverpool's bench last weekend. So I think that's the big issue with Jürgen. Is that I think he wants a certain level of commitment or... You know, he'd rather trust somebody he knows he's going to get six out of ten from than someone who, yeah, may give him nine out of ten, but could very easily give him four out of ten, which has often been the case with Naby. Naby's bad games have been particularly bad. His great games have been incredible, a level above what we've seen from the likes of Henderson and Wijnaldum and Milner. But Henderson gives him six out of ten most weeks. Some weeks he is a four. He was a four against Chelsea, but you know that would be put down to him playing out of position and Klopp alive for him. But you know Henderson is generally six out of ten. Ginny was seven out of ten, the odd four or five, but very rare. Whereas Naby, it's a bit more frequent. Uh, I do think Edwards is probably frustrated. I think he's become frustrated, maybe with Klopp, but definitely with the ownership. I think that's probably why he has decided it's time for him to move on. Uh, I hope that answers that one for you. Uh, Eddie Gibbs, will you feel better tomorrow than you do today? Marginally. Marginally. But then I found myself agreeing with Goldberg and I may be spiralling backwards, Eddie. Um, Dara, for how much longer is FSG's model of sustainability affecting us? And does it look like they're getting ready to sell? Now, I think it does look like they're getting ready to sell. If I'm being honest, I think it does. They're tying down players to long-term contracts. They gave the manager an extension that wasn't expected last year. Um, not that it wasn't expected he, he would be offered one, but it wasn't expected he would sign one. Doing up the stadium, expanding the stadium, the new training ground, the long-term deal with Nike, I do think it looks like they're getting their ducks in a row to sell. I don't think the sustainability um, model, if that's what you want to call it, is going to work for much longer because the current team is aging together into their 30s. Come the end of the season, I think there's only going to be Trent, Alison Trent Robbo, Fabinho from the starters who won't be th- who won't be 30. Now that, that that that's Bobby up front not Jota. Bobby is still first choice. If you include Jota that's fine. But then both Fab and Allison are pushing close as well. They're to be 29 I think by the end of the year or by the start of next season. So you'll only really have Robbo at 28. And the only ones below the age of 28 will be Trent and Jota. That's really concerning. Really concerning. 
especially considering the lack of depth. Um, Jock the Chuck, how much fun is Mina Riola going to have over the coming year, leading every single club into believing they're favourites for Erling Haaland to extract the fattest contract and chunkiest commission? Yeah, he, he is going to absolutely rinse every single club. And it's not just him, it's Haaland's dad who is also involved and is also looking for a nice big payday. Um, you know, I I hate seeing parents use their kids to make themselves money. I really do hate seeing that. And it's not like his dad doesn't have money of his own. His dad was a Premier League football player. His dad has plenty of money. So... He he needs to stay out of it. But yeah, it, it's going to be a circus around Haaland. It is. And I'm going to say it now. I think he's going to Real Madrid. And I think everybody else is wasting their time. I think he's going to Real Madrid. And, and the problem with Haaland is also going to be that as soon as you sign him, the clock starts ticking on when Mino Riola starts demanding the second contract. Because the contract you give him initially is not the contract he's going to play on for the five years of its lifetime. He'll probably play on it for about 18 months, and then Mino will start making noise that, you know, he needs a pay rise, etc., etc. I I think I think it's going to become an absolute an absolute clown show with this. You'll have United will be in, I think City will be in, PSG will be in. Bayern will be in, Juventus will probably be in. I think that's partly why they binned off Cristiano this summer. Um, you know Real will be in, and I think that's where he goes. I think Barca will find a way to get themselves involved. I think that's in part why they were so willing to to let Griezmann go and sign Luke de Jong as a, as a replacement. Um and I think Mino is going to play them all against each other. Because remember, the fee is set, 75 million. That's it. Anyone that can afford that can get in the sweepstakes. The problem then is the player has his choice. And the player is going to pick based on what Mino and his dad tell him to pick. And what they're going to tell him to pick is going to be based on who's paying the most money and who's paying the most money to them. So, yeah, Mino, I'd say, is is rubbing his hands together. And look, this is not to criticise Mino Riola. Mino Riola is a brilliant agent. People may not like him because of how he treats your club. That's not his job. His job is to look after his players. He doesn't care about your club or any club. Maybe one or two in the Netherlands where he's got close ties. PSV Eindhoven, I think he, I think he does care about them. But... His job is to do the best possible job for his players. And he does that. He does it over and over again. And he looks after his players. He looks after his guys. There's a real bond between Mino and his players. Mino doesn't have some huge staff. And he farms his players out to them. Mino looks after his guys. Mino's great at what he does. But he is absolutely going to rinse everybody next summer over Haaland. And he's going to get a ridiculous contract for Erling Haaland, a ridiculous commission for himself and a ridiculous payment 
for Haaland's dad. Ragav. Uh, Rajav? I, I, sorry, bud. Rajav, I'm going to call you. Um, with the transfer window shut and given the resources we have at our disposal, what tactical tweaks do you think we should do to extract the maximum talent Maximum from the talent available at our disposal. E.g. going to three at the back, playing Naby and Fab in a two, or going 4-4-2 four, four, with Jota and Salah up front. Man is a traditional left winger. Ox on the right, or maybe even Rafa tactics where he'd play a left back as a left winger. So that, that would obviously be playing Costas as a winger, uh, just to neutralise their attack. Playing a diamond with Thiago at the base and Bobby at the top. Um, no, I, I do think there's a real possibility for box midfield here where you would play Fabinho and Thiago as a two and then go with Naby and Mane as the next two, as the advanced two. Um, Klopp's done this before. He did it a few years ago at Bournemouth, played Naby off the left in a box with Mane on the right, and then... Out of possession, they'd simply just drop back in as traditional wingers and a flat four in midfield. And it worked really well. I think Emery played in midfield that day. I think it was Emery and Ginny. I could be wrong. I don't think Henderson played. I think he was injured at the time. But it would allow Thiago and Fab to play as a two. And then you get Jota and Mo as a two as well. Maybe Mo stays central and Jota moves around him. That could work. That could be something that works. Uh, I think Klopp, though, will be stubborn and will stick with his 4-3-3. We'll, we'll see some games of 4-4-2, I'm pretty sure of, where he wants to get the front four all in on the pitch together. So be that as a 4-4-2 as a or a 4-2-3-1, I do think we'll see some games using that. I mean, the other option in a 4-4-2 would be to play Mane off the right Jota off the left, but play them narrow and let them come in field. But on their, on their weaker foot, so you, you want them going outside the fullbacks, not always cutting into the middle. Um, and play Bobby and Mo as a two. It's such a shame they didn't follow through and get Saul done. Because Saul and Firmino, sorry, Saul and Fabinho as a double pivot with Thiago and Naby ahead of them. Similar to how Spain played with Busquets and Alonso and Xavi and Iniesta. That would have been fun to watch. And then you play Salah and Jota up front. And I do think that would be interesting to watch. But, you know, they didn't get it done. They missed their opportunity and he signed for one of the biggest rivals. So, uh, Tom James... If your son was a talented footballer with a choice of academies to join, where would you want him to pick? Taking into account his development, but most importantly, a club that will look after his best interests. So, I think the three best academies in the country, in order, are Chelsea, Arsenal, and United. And I would put City fourth. I think they are the four that stand well above everybody else. However... That's in terms of production of talent and the number of players that get pumped out by those academies. And that's a really risky 
strategy when you're sending your kid into an academy. It's a really risky situation to send them into because in order to develop 15 players a year that can be sold out as you know first-team players for other clubs or develop into the first team at your club, you have to be bringing in hundreds and hundreds a year, and Chelsea do. Chelsea, United and City, Arsenal to a lesser extent, but those three bring in enormous numbers of kids every single week. Chelsea are either the best or the worst for this, depending on your point of view. For more on this, go and read Ryan Baldy's new book, The Dream Factory. Ryan was on with me a couple of weeks ago, if you want to go back and listen to that. It's an excellent an excellent uh, chat with Ryan about how Chelsea have set their academy up, the amount of kids that come through. It, it does very much paint the picture of a factory where it's like a conveyor belt. And if if there's a flaw in a kid at six years of age, they pluck them out and throw them away. It's mental. For me, I would look at smaller clubs personally. I would look at clubs where they've got a good track record of producing quality players and they've got the right atmosphere around the club, more of a family-type feel, not to be, you know, one of them. But I do think that's important. I think Middlesbrough have done quite well in recent years at developing young players. I think Fulham have a good academy. Charlton have a good academy. I think West Ham is definitely one to consider. Because I think with West Ham, you've also got all that great tradition as well. And I think they get good schooling at West Ham. But the club I think I'd go with is Southampton. I think I'd go with Southampton because when you when you see players that came to Southampton, they're always very fundamentally well-rounded. There's not just a reliant on a reliance on talent or speed or anything like that. They're well-rounded players. They've got good technique. I think that type of thing translates better. I think if you've got good, well-rounded technique and work rate, you can make it as a footballer. If you've just got speed and nothing else, eventually you'll get found out. If you're an incredibly gifted player, but you don't work on the fundamentals of the game, and you know, also, the thing with, with Southampton players is they're always tactically switched on as well. Like, you look at Luke Shaw, even when he was having issues at United, he always felt he was fairly tactically switched on. Like, I know Mourinho had mean things to say about him, but I, I always felt they were just a nonsense. Mourinho trying to get more out of him because he knew Shaw was capable of more. You look at James Ward-Prowse, you kind of feel like you could put James Ward-Prowse in any position, right back, right wing, stick him at left back for a game if you need him. He's become a double pivot, having previously only really been comfortable in a three. Could play him as a 10. I think you could play him as a, as a wide forward as well. And he just adapt to it because tactically he's well developed. I think these things are important. And I think Southampton's really good at giving a very good grounding at making players fundamentally solid, technically proficient, and instilling that work ethic in them. So I think I'd go to Southampton. If if I had a kid that was good enough to get there, I think Southampton would probably be my choice if if that was a club that you know was interested in them.
Um, Isaac Gilding, in an effort to distract you and me from Liverpool's abject summer as much as possible, here's an OTT elaborate scenario to get stuck into. Imagine a six-a-side pitch on the centre spot as a ball and on each goal line as a player. On the whistle, they both run to the centre and try to score. Basically, 1v1 open play attacking and defending. First of two goals win, but it has to be two clear goals. So if it gets to 1-1, one, one, one player would need to score three. Players cannot score inside the D around the goal. Can't enter the opposition's D. Cannot score from their own half. From kickoff, the ball needs to be touched at least twice before a shot can happen just to stop anyone shooting straight away. For clarity, the pitch is about 80 by 55 metres. The goals are six foot by nine foot. Who do you think would win one-on-one -on -one battles? And who do you think? how do you think each would play out? Who do you think would be interesting one-on-one -on -one contests? So just looking at some of these, and they are very, very interesting. So the first one up is Salah versus Mane. And this is an interesting one. So Mane is the more explosive athlete off the line. I'd say Sadio would beat Salah in a sprint over 10 to 15 yards. But I think once it gets beyond 30, I think Salah can maintain it a bit better. So if they've got 40 yards to go to get to halfway, I do think Salah gets to the ball first. Now, Mane is the better defensive player of the two. He's also got more the more needle of the two. But Mo, I think, is probably a little bit stronger when it comes to holding on to the ball. I think he's got quicker feet as well when it comes to beating someone 1v1. And he's a more accurate shooter. But I think Sadio is a better weak foot shooter, which makes him less predictable if he gets to the ball first. Which way will he go? I think Sadio scores the first goal. But I think Mo beats him 4-2. I think Mo would beat him 4-2. Mbappe versus Haaland. Haaland's a much more physical player. But I think Mbappe has better technique. He's definitely quicker. And Haaland's lightning, but Mbappe is definitely quicker. I think Mbappe gets to him. The other thing with Haaland is, because he's got so much mass, he's not the most nimble. I think Mbappe gets to him, knocks the ball by him, and just keeps running. I think Mbappe beats him 2-0. Van Dijk versus Kunde. Virgil's much bigger. Kunde's more nimble, but I think Virgil's top speed is probably faster. Kunde's probably got a little bit quicker acceleration, but I do think Virgil is a more technically all-round football, more technical all-round footballer. And if he wanted, he could probably just seal dribble the ball down the field because he's got a bit of six-inch height advantage. I'll go Virgil to win that one two nil. Uh, Saul versus Thiago. So neither are. Lightning quick. Um, Saul obviously is more. He's got a better. He's got better stamina than Saul. I think he could probably play at a pace that Saul wouldn't be comfortable with, or that Thiago wouldn't be comfortable with. 
he'd certainly harass Thiago when Thiago has the ball. And then, you know, if we're playing six aside, you're letting some fouls go. You know, no blood, no no foul, no break, no foul. In some in some places, you go some parts of South London. Um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Saul harasses and harangues him and beats Thiago three one. Havertz versus Foden, two exceptionally talented players. I think Foden's a better dribbler, but I think Havertz a better finisher. Havertz bigger, stronger. I think they're probably about a wash in terms of speed. I think Havertz is a better defensive player. I think that one will be tough. I'll go Kai 4-2. Bruno versus De Bruyne. De Bruyne's quicker. I think Bruno's big advantage is he only needs the two touches. So one touch, get it out of his feet and shoot. De Bruyne has better touch, better feel for the game. I think he's got a more versatile shooting technique in that he can use any part of his foot, whereas I think Bruno likes to put his foot through the ball. I'll go De Bruyne, 3-1. Rafinha versus Mares. You know the the meme of Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man? That's kind of this, except I think Rafinha is quicker. I'll go Rafinha 2-0. I think he's better defensively, harder working, better tackler. I think there's a bit more needle in him as well. So I'll go Rafinha 2-0. Maguire versus Mings. Maguire is so slow that all Mings needs to do is get to the ball, touch it away, and take a quick shot over his head. Now, it's a large head, but I still think he manages it. I think he's also quick enough and strong enough that Maguire's not going to get past him. So I'll go Mings 2-0. Maradona versus Pele. Maradona absolutely wipes the floor with him in a 1v1. Not a word of of doubt in my... Not a, a bit of doubt in my mind. Maradona wipes the floor with him. I'll go 2-0 two, Maradona. Uh, Cristiano versus Lewandowski. Cristiano's too quick for Lewandowski. He'll win that one 2-0. Or9 versus Maldini. This is horrible. Why would you do this to me? Um, Maldini's the greatest defender there's ever been. But Ornine's probably the greatest nine there's ever been. And if we're talking Barcelona era, before his knee exploded, I think that version of Ornine wins. If we're talking any version after, Maldini wins a 2 0. If it's early, Early or nine PSV Barca, I think it's it's five three to him because like he's not going to be good enough defensively to stop Maldini. So you know if if Mal if or nine scores, if we're going that they take the ball out from their own penalty box and just have to go up the field, I I think Maldini's going to be able to get by or nine. I think he's strong enough to keep him off the ball. Um, so I think it ends up by 5-3. Salah versus Van Dijk. I think Salah wins. I think Salah wins. But he only wins if he's literally 
getting the ball to halfway and shooting just inside the opposition half. He's not winning if he's trying to get the ball the whole way down the field and score. Virgil's putting him into the wall. Um, but I think that could be an interesting one. I'd, I'd like to see that. I really would like to see that. I'll go Salah 4-2. Messi now versus Fabinho. Messi beats him. Fab's great at shooting from long range. Fab's great at anticipation, but Messi is Messi. I'll, I'll go 2-0 Messi. Sorry, Fab, but I have to go 2-0 Messi. I love that. That is absolutely... That's a brilliant exercise. Thank you very much. Um, Chris Colby, since Daniel Sturridge's birthday is today, it's also Daniel Sturridge's birthday. It's Bill Shankly's birthday too. Uh, what are your favourite goals you scored for Liverpool? One from when Rodgers was manager and one under Klopp. I thought the Chelsea stoppage time goal was a clear-cut favourite under Klopp, but the Europa League goal was class too. I would go the Europa League goal because that outside-the-foot technique, I think, is very hard. From a standing... Like, he's not running onto the ball. The ball is not moving. He's literally... He's doing it with no backlift, generating that kind of power and that kind of swerve. I'd go that one. But the Chelsea goal was world-class. The Rodgers one, it's the chip against West Brom. Suarez got a hat-trick that day, including one of the best-headed goals you'll ever see. And all three of them combined weren't a patch on what Sturridge did. That goal by Daniel Sturridge is one of the best goals I've ever seen. People don't understand how good Daniel Sturridge is or was. Like, people like to phone over Harry Kane. Harry Kane doesn't have half the natural ability Daniel Sturridge has. Not half. It's such a shame. England missed out on one of their greatest ever strikers because his body failed him. It's a shame. Uh, Brian X, if FSG were to sell, what type of owner would you be okay with? A Glazer type, uh, a City or PSG type, or a Roman type, or a sovereign wealth fund such as the Chinese Investor Investment Corporation? Do you think there would be uproar amongst the fans of any of those owners? were to take over the club. Um, even knowing they would potentially be spending as other clubs do. Uh, I, I definitely wouldn't want a Glazers type owner because we've already had that. We had Hicks and Gillette and, and it was horrible. Um, a PSG City type, I would have to say no to. Uh, largely because the one that's you know out there is Saudi Arabia and... Um, MBS, if you're listening, son, no, no offense. Uh, please don't come and chop me up into a, into a basin. But uh, no, keep your money. Um, I think a, a Roman type is probably the less offensive of the three. Um, uh, that's probably the, the the less least offensive of the three. But it's finding the right one. And finding one that's not, you know, in Putin's pocket, finding one that's not corrupt. I think that's quite a challenge. Um, sovereign wealth funds are an interesting thing. The issue with the Chinese investment corporation is, you know, the human rights issues in China. 
look, if you want one of these type of owners, you're going to have to, you know, swallow your pride and, and be willing to step down from the moral high ground. For me, I think there's many, many rich people who don't fall into any of these four categories who could buy Liverpool or another club such as Newcastle and, you know, spend quite a bit of money. There's a lot of people who are richer than Roman Abramovich um, that, you know, whose names we don't even know. So I, I do think there are other options, but of those four, I think a Roman type is probably the least offensive. A Glazers type is horrendous. I, I just wouldn't want the City or PSG type. The Sovereign Wealth Fund from China, I mean, that that level of money is eons beyond even what City and PSG have. But, no, I, I think I'd want a Roman type. Um, let's have a look. Who are the Russian billionaires? So... Alexei Murdashov, 55 years of age. He is the majority shareholder in Severstal, which are, um, is a mining company. Yeah, maybe him. He's got, he's got loads of money. So I'll take him. Vladimir Lysen. Give me one of these. Give me one of the Russians. 29. Alexei Murdashov's worth 29.1 million. He'll do. I'll take him. Um, if he has any questionable. He's worth double what Roman Abramovich is worth. Double. Now I say this knowing nothing about him. If he has questionable um, morals, then rule him out. But him, Vladimir Potanin, he, he, he looks like a very cheery chap, so, you know, could be great crack. Vladimir Lysen, I think I've heard of him. I don't think he's a very good man. Um, yeah, g give me one of these Russian fellas. I I'll take one of them over. Oh, now, again, I'm taking one of them over the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund, a Glazer type, or this, you know... PSG City model. I'll, I'll take them over that. Not saying I'm taking them over anybody, but yeah, that'll do for me. Um, right, next up, YNWA Foodie. Is that one one word Feyenoord worth watching? Have you seen it? Or if others have told you anything about it? I haven't seen it. I've read about it. It's apparently excellent. I'm definitely going to watch it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think it's probably going to be worth a watch. I think all of those things are quite interesting. Any any sort of behind-the-scenes access, for me, into most sports. Like I'm watching the the one on Amazon about the Aussie cricket team uh, at the minute. I, I know nothing about cricket. I was at, I've been to one cricket match in my life. Uh, it was a, an Ashes match in Perth in 2014, early 2014, I think. Uh, I was at that, and I haven't been at anything else. I know nothing about cricket. But it's fascinating to watch all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like, all the um, all-or-nothing stuff on Amazon, be it 
the American football ones or the ones about City or or Spurs or the upcoming Arsenal one, they're all very interesting. So uh, any of that kind of stuff is good. And uh, I think this will be as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Right, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got some more questions and there's probably a bit of gossip as well. So, see in a few. Right, welcome back. We are going through listener questions at the moment. And the next ones are from Mikhail Campbell. Um, who do you think is the best player in Syria now? Do you think Inter did good enough business in the transfer window to defend their league title and possibly have a good run in the Champions League? So Inter obviously lost Antonio Conte as manager, brought in Simone Inzaghi. It's a downgrade, but uh, Inzaghi is a good manager, and he plays a nice brand of football. He plays the back three, which helps for continuity. I think they did really well to hold on to players. So they obviously lost Hakimi and lost Lukaku. Those are both devastating, but I do like Dumfries as as a replacement for Hakimi. He's not as good, but he is a good player. They kept Skriniar. They kept Bastoni, they kept De Vries. So they'll have that back three. They add Zeno van Houston, but he's gone on loan, I think. But long term, he, he'll fit in there as well, probably as a replacement for De Vries. Not a big fan of Darmian, but I do like the signing of Joaquin Correa. You add him to the attacking mix with Laturo and the signing of Eden Zeko. And I think that's it's going to be interesting up front. Not as potent as Lukaku, but still should be pretty formidable look uh Jekyll will still get you goals he just won't get you the all-round or give you the all-round play of Lukaku they keep Barella they keep Brozovic they keep Sensi they keep that midfield together all things considered and they bring in Hakan Chalanaglu as well I should point out all things considered I think they did really well given the financial constraints on them given how many people were after the likes of Latura Martinez and Barella I think they've done really well I don't think it's quite enough to defend the title. I don't think they'll have a great run in the Champions League, but they will be hard to beat. They're going to be really strong defensively because Conte's instilled that in in them over two years. And Inzaghi's a more creative attacking coach. So they'll be a hard out in Europe. I I think if they get to the quarterfinals, I think they'll have done really well. That's as far as I'd go with it. I think if they get quarterfinals, that's probably about it. Um, I think Juve've probably done enough to secure the title this year with Allegri back, Locatelli in, Moise Keane in, and, and getting rid of Cristiano. I think Juve'll have enough to stabilise and, and win the league. Um, is is Nicolo Zaniolo talented enough to become the next Roberto Baggio if he can stay injury-free? I think he's more a midfielder than a, a striker the way Badju was. Badju was that kind of second striker. But he is super talented. And if he can stay fit, I do think he can become a star player for this Italian team. And along with Chiesa and Barella and Locatelli, become one of the long-term mainstays in the team. Um, staying fit is going to be an issue. He's had two... ACL tears already, which is concerning. 
And playing under Mourinho, you'd wonder what that's going to do for his development. He's already been sent off once this season. But he is a 6-3 unit with incredible ball control, very creative, good dribbler, good finisher. I, I do really like him. I do. He's had a bizarre career. Started out with Genoa, was in their academy for two years, was in Fiorentina's academy for six years. Then he left, went to Virtus Intella, who I, I don't know who they are or what that is. Um, they're in Serious C Group B, so obviously very small club. I think that was his way out of Fiorentina to end up at Inter. Probably something that Inter worked. Inter then sent him to Roma in a deal for... Nangolin, which was a bad deal for them, losing the, their best young player. But he's he's had a unique career. The ACL tears are not obviously something you'd want to see in any player, let alone a young player, and especially in that short order as well. Um, one in the January of 2020, and then one in September of 2020. So that's that's not great, but hopefully he comes back and he is fully fit now and he can get back to being um, the player we know he's got the talent to be. Can he be the next Baggio? I don't think so. I think Baggio was, is one of the all-time most talented players the game's ever seen and as, as talented as Zaniolo is, I don't think he's that level of, of you know, potential. Um, but I do love him. I absolutely do love him. Um, Stephen Smith asks, well, first of all, no, I have not recovered from my FSG poisoning. Uh, an international week question. Make your current European 11 and World 11 with an international manager overstating, over, sorry, overseeing both teams. Um, okay, so I've done this um, ahead of time because Guy sent this on to me. So, for the international team, for the for the rest of the world team, I've gone with Alison Becker in goal. I, I think he is the best goalkeeper. Um, if he's not the best, he's the second best after Jan Oblak. So I've got him as my goalkeeper. I've gone with a back three of Marquinhos, who I think is probably a top three centre-back in the world. Romero, who I think is top ten, and Koulibaly, who, while not as good as he was a couple of years ago, is still really, really good and still probably top 10 in the world. Um, I've gone with Ashraf Hakimi as my right wing back and Alfonso Davies as my left wing back. I've gone for a midfield two of Casemiro and Fabinho, two holding midfielders, but we're going to need them when you hear the attack. But I, I really like that. I think I think they complement each other well because I don't think they're similar in how they play the role. And then as a front three, front three, I've got Mo Salah, Lionel Messi, and Neymar. I think that's the trio. Um, I did consider Hyung Min Son instead of Neymar because I just think Neymar's wasted his career. But Neymar is the better player. Neymar is incredible. And he's a lot of fun to watch when he's not rolling around on the floor. So that's what I've gone with. I've gone with a 3-4-3. Alisson, Koulibaly, Marquinhos, Romero, Hakimi, Casemiro, Fabinho, Davies, Salah, Messi, Neymar. And as a manager, I've gone for, I, I think, kind of the ultimate international manager at this point, Uruguay's Oscar Tiberes. He's... 
just so ingrained in Uruguayan football at this point. He's been manager for 15 years. He's done a remarkable job. He's he's 74 and he's still going. Um, of his 196 games as manager of Uruguay, he's won 92. He's won the Copa America with them, which was huge back in 2011. I, I just think I, I'd go with him. I, I, looking out, outside of European managers, I'm not a big fan of, you know, who Brazil have, who Argentina have. I don't know enough about the African managers or the Asian managers. So I'll go with him. Uh, I, I've always been a fan. I, I like what he's done. I think he's underrated by a lot of people. Um, but I think he's done brilliantly with, with Uruguay, Uruguay in guiding arguably the best ever team with Suarez and, and Cavani, etc. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, and Diego Godin, of course. I'll go with him. For Europe, then, I've got Jan Oblak in goal. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold at right-back. Andy Robertson at left-back. Virgil van Dijk is the left-side centre-back. The right-side centre-back it, it was problematic. De Ligt should be in that role, but he hasn't developed properly the last two years at UVA. Injuries and... In, you know, the unstable nature of um, of what's been going on there. So for me, I've gone with Milan Skriniar. I think he's the European centre-back after Van Dijk that stood out the most over the last couple of seasons. I would have him above Ruben Diaz. Um, some of them I had to rule out because they play left side like Virgil. But I think Skriniar is the, the fair choice. I think he's excellent. I did consider Jules Koundé, but he hasn't done enough at the international level just yet. In midfield, I've gone with a trio of Barella, Kimmich and Verratti. Now, obviously, you're coming off the back of a Euros. Jorginho was great in the Euros, but I don't think he's as good a player as any of those three. I don't think he had overall as good a season as any of those three. He had a really good run in the Champions League, but he was very poor domestically till about... March. Even in the Champions League, he wasn't great until about March. So, as good a run as he had, I still don't think he's as good a player as Barella, Kimmich, or Verratti. And then my front three, I've got Federico Chiesa, Harry Kane, and Kylian Mbappe. I, I, I understand people will say, well, what about Lewandowski? I think Kane, at this point, is a better player than Lewandowski. Better all-rounder. Lewandowski's probably still marginally a better goal scorer, but I think Kane's a better all-rounder. Um, Haaland's not on Kane's level yet. Cristiano, I considered, but who do you take out? I think is a better player than him now, and Chiesa on the right, Cristiano doesn't play there. You could play him on the left, but over Mbappe, I know Mbappe had a disappointing Euros, but he was unbelievable last season. And Cristiano, despite scoring five goals, did not play well in the Euros. He scored some penalties and some tap-ins and didn't play well. Now, Harry Kane didn't play well at the Euros either, but his season last year was incredible, whereas Cristiano had a fairly average season, scored a lot of goals, but wasn't a contributing factor for his team. So I've left him out. And his manager, Roberto Mancini. Um, I went with international managers, I hope that's what I was meant to do, uh, rather than picking a club manager who could fit in. So that's why I've gone Mancini and, and Taberas. Um, 
Right, that's that one. A uh, couple more before we go. Let's see. Uh, Adam Hanlon has a couple here. Aside from failing to strengthen our depth in the window, if Mane and Firmino were at their best, like 2017-19, for example, do you think this window would have been less of an issue? Right now, I feel Minamino and Origi aren't good enough backups, while Bobby and Sadio are still good footballers. They're just not great anymore. This is a killer blow for me. I'd reluctantly accept the window if we had the old Bobby and Sadio. Now it seems like a double whammy. I fully agree. I think a lot of Liverpool fans are making the argument, oh, well, you can't find a fifth forward. The problem is Liverpool don't need a fifth forward. Liverpool need a starter because Firmino shouldn't be starting anymore. Firmino should be the fifth forward. So Liverpool should have been in the market for a starting forward this summer. Uh, so they failed to address that. If you wanted a fifth forward, you could have got Adamola Luckman on loan. Like Leicester got him on loan at the end of the window. He'd been available all summer long. So the, the idea that you couldn't find someone to come in is nonsense. Uh, if Manny and, Sa- and, and Bobby were still the same players they were a couple of years ago, then a Luckman would have been ideal. You still would have wanted that depth or else you run the risk of the decline we've already seen happening this season, because the reason they've declined is Jurgen Klopp has run them into the ground. That's what's happened there. Klopp has run them into the ground. Um, You'd still want that depth, that extra option. Clear he doesn't rate Origi. Clear he doesn't rate Minamino. He sent Minamino on loan because he wasn't tall enough. I mean, that's nonsense. He sent him on loan because you didn't rate him. Origi's sitting in the stands because you don't rate him. You're not happy with your options. Don't stop lying to everybody. Uh, question two. Due to the fact Liverpool fans were told by journalists that the club see next summer as the time for a shake-up of the squad, do you believe this is why we've seen minimal activity? So, for example, Mane, Firmino, Origi, Minamino and Phillips, etc. leave. The likes of Gravenberch and Doku, for example, come in. Um. I don't believe that next summer is going to be a big summer because Liverpool fans were told that this summer was going to be a big summer. Uh, so, no, I, they were told that last summer was going to be... I don't believe a word of it, to be honest. I, I don't believe anything that comes out from these journalists. These journalists are the same people that said that the Redbird investment was going to cover any losses from COVID so Liverpool would be able to spend as normal. They said Liverpool were looking for an attacker and a midfielder. Then they said Liverpool didn't want a midfielder. Then they made up a lie about how, oh, it's the homegrown quota. But once they sell Shakiri, well, they sold Shakiri and still did nothing. And now I wonder why they sold Shakiri. Undervalue. Ridiculous. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't believe that there will be a big um, shake-up next summer. If Minamino and... Sorry, if Mane and Firmino continue to decline and Minamino and Origi f- f- fail to contribute... Do you think a front three of Elliot, Salah and Jota could be a possibility? Similar to that, could a change of shape benefit us in that circumstance? Example, 4-2-2-2. Jones, the left midfield, Harvey Knox in the right, Moan Jota in the middle, Thiago and Fabinho in centre mid. Yeah, I, I do think I do think that front three could be interesting. Elliot off the right, Salah through the middle and Jota off the left. I think that could be fun. You could also go Salah off the right, Jota in the middle, and Jones off the left, where he did play quite a bit in the academy. 
Um, the box midfield does interest me. Again, you mentioned Jones there. Naby can play that left-sided role as well. Harvey and Ox as the right-sided ones. Moen and Jota through the middle. Then you can spell Mane, spell for, uh, Firmino. They can be the bench players. Thiago and Fabinho in centre midfield. You know he's going to play Henderson for too many games anyways, but he'll be a, a rotation option there too. So, yeah, I, I do think those are all options. I definitely do. Whether Klopp will admit that he made mistakes in the summer, whether he'll publicly admit that um, the squad isn't good enough, I don't think so. But we may see him tinker with this with the shape. Uh, that That is something that's possible and hopefully comes to fruition. Um, and then the last question I have here, I think, I hope I haven't missed anybody. This one is from James. What do you think is the most underrated 11 you could make from current Premier League teams? Mine would probably be something like McCarthy, Trent, Evans, Matip, Target, Hoysberg, Kovacic, Delhi, Salah, Sterling, Barnes. Right, so Trent is definitely overrated by some people, but I think the majority of people do realise how special he is. Um, I agree on Evans, Matip and Target all being underrated players. Hoysberg is massively underrated, uh, as is Kovacic. Delhi, I think, has has caused himself to become less highly rated by having a couple of bad seasons. But I agree that your front three are all underrated. What I've gone with here, um, to work backwards, I've also picked Harvey Barnes. Um, I, I think he's very, very underrated. I, I think it's incredible to me how underrated he is. I saw Liverpool fans dismiss the idea of signing him, saying he wasn't good enough. And it's just garbage. He is excellent. Absolutely excellent. I think Patrick Bamford has to be here. Now, I know he's made the most recent England squad, but the fact that he was overlooked in the summer was huge. But Bamford is certainly one that you have to talk about because his all-round game is excellent. There's not a flaw in his game. There's no area you'd look at and say he's not good at that. I don't think there's, on this the flip side, I don't think there's anything he's brilliant at. I think he's just someone who's good at everything, really well-rounded. And if he was like 10% better at everything, he'd probably be really pushing hard for a move to a top six club. If he was really good in one or two areas, I think he'd be more highly rated as well. So Bamford's got to be considered. Mikel Antonio has to be considered, though I do think the league is waking up to him. But I'll go Bamford as my nine. Barnes off the left, and I agree with you. I think Mo Salah is incredibly underrated. I I just don't understand how anyone could make the argument that Eden Hazard or Cristiano were better in the Premier League than him. I really don't understand how anyone's making that argument. Eden Hazard, let us not forget, had multiple seasons where he was atrocious for Chelsea. Multiple seasons. Now, he was at Chelsea for seven years. And in 15-16, he scored six goals. He was awful. I can't remember what other season it was, but he had another really bad season as well. Now, he look, Hazard was tremendous. He was one of the best players in the league. But he wasn't on the level that Salah's at. He just wasn't. Even in terms of creativity, he wasn't on Salah's level. Nowhere close on goal scoring. His final season there, I think, was his best in terms of goal numbers. 
21, but, you know, 21's not huge in all competitions, especially in, in 50-odd games. You look at Cristiano, he's at United for six years. Only three of them are good seasons in terms of return. Uh, 23 in 52, sorry, 23 in 53, 42 in 49, 26 in 53. That's really, really good. But it's only three seasons. Mo Salah has now been tearing up the Premier League for four straight seasons. And in his first season at Liverpool, he put together a better season than any season Cristiano had at United. His first season at Liverpool is better than any season Cristiano Ronaldo had at United. And if you look at his second season and his fourth season, which was last year, they're better than the other two good Cristiano years at United. Cristiano only scored more than 18 Premier League goals once. Salah has done it four times. Cristiano's best Premier League season was 31 goals. Salah's, 32. Cristiano's best seasons in terms of all competition goals, 42. Salah's, 44. Cristiano only scored over 25 goals twice. Salah has done it three times. So, I, I just don't know how you can make an argument that he's not the best winger slash wide forward in the history of the Premier League. I don't think there's a real argument for that. So uh, I've got Salah. In midfield, I've gone with a two in midfield of Heusberg and Kovacic, which you have, both of them. I've gone with a wing-back system. I've got James Justin, who I just think is incredibly underrated. When people talk about the best English fullbacks, you hear about Trent, you hear about Wan-Bissaka, you hear about Reese James, you hear about Lamptey. James Justin is better than all of them bar Trent. Left-back-wise, you hear about Shaw, you hear about Chilwell. I'd still have James Justin over Chilwell. I think I'd have him over Shaw as well because of the versatility. Can play centre-back, can play holding midfield. Last season, his performances at left-back for Leicester were more impressive than Ben Chilwell's the previous season, without a doubt. I think he is the best fullback in the league in terms of defensive play. Right back, left back, doesn't matter to me. He's good going forward on both sides as well. He's not as good a footballer as Trent, but he is a better defender than Trent. I think James Justin's hugely underrated. At left wing back, I've shoehorned in Dwight McNeil. I think McNeil's massively underrated. I think it's incredible that he's still at Burnley. How a Premier League club didn't snatch him up this summer, I really don't know. Great left foot, can play left wing. In a top team, I think he could play left back. You could play him left-hand side of a midfield three. He can go box to box. He's got great energy. Defensively, he's very, very good. Dyche has schooled him really, really well. He's clever with his use of the ball. He's a good passer, great crosser. I th And he can play both sides as well. I think Dwight McNeil has to be considered here. Uh, I've gone with a back three. I've got two of, um, of the same as James. I've gone with Matip and Johnny Evans as the left-sided one. Matip is the central one. Matip, Matip is overrated by Liverpool fans in that some of them think he's in, like on the same level as Van Dijk, and he just isn't. 
but he is very good and he's I would rather have Joel Matip than Harry Maguire for example I think he's a more consistent defender than Harry Maguire the issue with Matip is injuries Joel Matip is very very injury prone but as a defender he's better than Harry Maguire he's got better pace he's better 1v1 he's better in the air and that's that's Maguire's big thing he's a better passer of the ball and Maguire's a good passer but Matip is better he's good at carrying the ball which again is another thing that Maguire is good at but he reads the game so much better he doesn't make the positional mistakes now the one thing Maguire has on Matip is Maguire's great at heading the ball at the opposition goal and Matip might be the worst I've ever seen in that regard but I'd rather have Joel Matip than Harry Maguire personally uh, Johnny Evans, I think, is the most underrated, or sorry, before last season, I think he was the most underrated defender in the league. Very, very good player. Reads the game really well. Good talker, organizer, good positional sense, leader. And I think the fact that Leicester got him for three million from West Brom was just so strange that no one else snapped him up. And um, so I've got him, and I've got Esri Konza, who for me last season. Other than Ruben Diaz, there wasn't a better centre-back in the league. And I think it was quite close between the two. This idea that Diaz was transformative is nonsense. But he was easily the best English centre-back through the season. Far better than John Stones, better than Maguire. Carried Tyron Mings and somehow didn't make the England squad. So Esri Cons has got to be in. Now, the last one there is goalkeeper. So, this is tough because... There's a couple of answers here, but the one I'm going to go for, he's actually injured at the moment, is Martin Dubravka at Newcastle. Now, I know he's got a, he's got an error in him, but all the goalkeepers in the league have an error in them. Ederson makes big errors. Allison makes errors. Pickford is England's number one. He's hugely error-prone. Mendy makes big errors. De Gea's made huge errors over the last few years. So does Dean Henderson. Fabianski's error-prone, Larissa's error-prone. I don't think much of Sanchez at, at Brighton in terms of consistency. He's a good shot-stopper. Casper um, Schmeichel is one to consider here. He He's still underrated by some. Now, he's not as good as certain members of the media who want to pretend like he's his dad, want to make out. He's not nearly as good as his dad, but he is underrated. Um, I think Emmy Martinez is still underrated. Like you said, McCarthy and Forster are underrated. I just don't think they know who the better keeper is there. Um, Melier's underrated because he's so young. Nick Pope remains underrated because he plays for Burnley. I really don't like Jose Sa. I think he's the worst keeper in the league. Leno's overrated, and so is Ramsdale. Tim Krul is underrated, but not enough that you would make an argument for him. I think the answer's here. There's two. I think you could potentially go for Casper, but I'm going to go with Dubravka. I, I think Dubravka is the most underrated in the league. And I'll just I'll throw in a manager here because, you know, why not? I, it, Deich. Deich is so underrated. People just overlook him because of the style of football and don't look at what he's working with. I think Sean Deich remains hugely underrated for what he's done at Burnley. We'll finish up with the gossip and get done for today. Bit of a long one today. Uh, Borussia Dortmund and Norway, uh, Norway striker Erling Haaland will be Manchester United's top striker, 
target for next summer despite the arrival of Cristiano. This is from ESPN, written by Mark Ogden, so we can place that firmly in a bin. Outgoing Manchester United executive Ed Woodward played a key role in the acquisition of Ronaldo. Does lip service been played to everybody? Evra, Rio Ferdinand, Ferguson, Woodward, Ollie, everybody apparently played. If that many people needed to convince them, what really paid a big role in him going there is the 480 grand a week that they're paying him. Barcelona will try to sign Danny Olmo again in January after a deadline day, 50 million bid was rejected. They don't have 50 million to spend. There was no bid on deadline day. There was never any chance of Barca signing Joe Felix. Uh, of course there wasn't. Spufrizio Romano just randomly throwing names together. Leicester, Southampton and Nottingham Forest all made late efforts to sign Jed Spence. Well, as I said, somebody should have signed him. I think Crystal Palace have missed a bit of a trick there. Liverpool could have done with him as a backup to Trent. Don't think Leicester needed him. They've got good right-back options as things stand. Uh, Southampton, they did sign a right-back. I don't know that that's true. I think that's the Northern Echo just kind of speculating a little bit. But yeah, Premier League clubs should have been all over him. Nuno Espirito Santo assured new, sign, new Tottenham signing Emerson Royale that he would play a key role in the team before the Brazilian defender agreed to leave Barcelona. I'm sure he will. I think he's going to actually be really good for them. I'm quite looking forward to seeing that. Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal are set to battle for Brighton and Mali midfielder Yves Basuma in January. They could have signed him this summer. He was available all summer and nobody made a bid for him. You know, it is what it is. The relationship between Steve Bruce and Mike Ashley is at its lowest ebb after a disappointing transfer deadline day, which saw Magpies miss out on a key loan target being Hamza Chowdhury. Um, if Hamza Chowdhury is your key target, you're in trouble. Uh, Mike Ashley can't afford for Steve Bruce to go because the, the best thing an unpopular manager like Ashley can have is an unpopular, ma- an unpopular owner like Ashley can have is an even more unpopular manager than Steve Bruce who's happy to be a punching bag because he loves the club that much. Um, if Bruce walks, Ashley's in trouble, and Bruce should walk because he's been treated with no respect there at all. Go and manage a lower league club and, and do your thing, Steve Bruce. Um, Arsenal's Norwegian midfielder Martin Odegaard signed from Real Madrid this summer, says he does not like seeing Amazon cameras around the club. The Gunners are the latest team to be subject of an all-or-nothing documentary, and by God, it's going to be a belter, folks. Um, the dysfunction at Arsenal will be just tremendous to watch. I I think Odegaard should keep his mouth closed about these type of things, to be honest. Um, the Gunners are beginning to regret the £72 million signing. <coughs> beginning to regret the £72 million signing of Nicolas Pepe from Lille in 2019 after his disappointing start to the season. Uh, this is from The Mirror. I'm going to guess it's John Cross. No, someone called Matt Maltby, head of National Sports News National Sports Network desk. Uh, I'm. It's they've plucked a line from nowhere in the story does it actually say that they were beginning to regret it. They've said that they've been worried about his start to the season. And there's been question raised about whether they should have signed Wilf Zaha instead of him. 
Um, but yeah, they haven't said they're beginning to regret the deal at all. Um, Barcelona are set to offer Usman Dembele a new contract. He's at a contract next summer. 105 million spent on him, don't you know? And currently out with another hamstring injury. And Chelsea's 22-year-old French defender Malang Sarr has been left in limbo after his loan move to Bundesliga side Greater Furth collapsed on deadline day. He's going to end up in Turkey or Russia, is my guess, on a loan. Um, poor old Malang. I don't think he made the right move in joining Chelsea. Radio folks, that's me for today. Uh, you take care of yourselves. Have a pleasant evening, and I will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs>